This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, and welcome to Digital Nomads, a podcast about nomadism and nomadic peoples around the world and throughout history. I'm your host, Maggie, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Kara Kennedy, who's a researcher, writer, and educator in the areas of science fiction, digital literacy, and writing. She wrote her PhD on the representation of the women of the Bene Gesserit in Frank Herbert's six-book Dune series, which has recently been published as a monograph titled Women's Agency in the Dune Universe, Tracing Women's Liberation Through Science Fiction. She's also lectured and published on other aspects of Frank Herbert's Dune, including world building, names, the Lawrence of Arabia influence, social sciences, and spice. Her second book on Dune is currently in the publication pipeline, and she also posts analyses aimed at a mainstream audience on her blog at dunescholar.com. So thank you so much, Kara, for joining me. Thanks for having me. So we'll get into the sort of meat of this episode in a minute, um, but first let's provide some background and context for listeners who maybe need it and might not be familiar with Dune and the Dune universe. So could you give the kind of cliff notes, five minute summary version of what Dune is? Sure. That's a hard one. So, <laughs> so Frank Herbert um, wrote Dune in the early sixties and it first came out in a uh, science fiction magazine before it came out as a novel. So it was, it came out in 1963 through 65. And then he was able to secure a publisher to have it published as a novel in 1965. It was popular initially, but it really gained steam um, over the next few years. And then when college campuses really found it, it really flourished in the early 70s. And by then he had started um, publishing sequels to it. And so he ended up writing six books in that universe. Um, going from 1965 to 1985, and he he passed away before he was able to write um, the seventh book. And Dune is considered science fiction, but it does kind of sit on the border of science fiction and fantasy and space opera. Herbert wasn't interested so much in the technology and the space travel side of things, which we might often think of as science fiction. He was really interested in the human and what impact does technology and what impact does all the kinds of things happening in the world or might happen in the future have on the human? And so that really makes Dune unique in terms of science fiction because it is not like a lot of other science fiction. And the first novel is, it's set in the future, but he really takes a lot of inspiration from the past. So it has a very feudal medieval feel to it, which again, 
makes it stand out from other science fiction that's set in a kind of futuristic world. So even though it is the future, it feels very much like it is in the past um, with barons and dukes and, and an emperor. And in terms of the topic of nomads, it's also interesting because the the aristocracy that arrive on this new planet Dune to take over, they encounter this semi-nomadic tribal people called the Fremen. And they're heavily influenced by Middle Eastern culture and Arabic. There's Islamic influences as well as Native American influences. And he has these foreigners come into this land and integrate with these people as they find shelter and really utilize those people in sometimes exploitative ways, but to to reconquer their, their kingdom. And so in terms of looking at science fiction, it's a really interesting story because there are aspects that are very familiar to us that Herbert takes from across history, but he spins them together in a, in a new way. And in order to try to give some commentary on what's happening in society, what people are doing to the environment and those, those kinds of things. And then, and then in the sequels, he really explores the themes that he develops in the first book further. And I'm curious about just how and why you got into studying Dune. You know, you wrote your dissertation on it, you've written books on it. What's compelling about it to you or what's the kind of significance of the Dune series in your mind? So I discovered Dune like a lot of people when I was a teenager and, and discovered the amazingness of science fiction. And I just randomly stumbled across the first book. Um, it was My dad had a copy it was on the bookshelf and I kept seeing it and I finally decided to just pick it up and read it. And I just absolutely fell in love with it and just devoured the whole series. Thinking back, I really enjoyed the, the world and I also really liked the female characters, especially Jessica. I remember this was something you don't get in a lot of fiction is a really a strong female character who's compelling and interesting and three-dimensional. And so when it came time in undergraduate for me to write my honors project, I wanted to do something different than what I had been doing, which is a lot of traditional literature, like say Shakespeare and Chaucer. That really is what launched me into, I did my master's on, on Dune and expanded on that initial study. And then I always wanted to look at all six books. And so that's why for my PhD, I thought this is an opportunity to write something longer and to look at all six books. And there is something interesting that happens with the women in the later books, Herbert really shifts the focus toward almost completely female characters in the later two books. And so I thought that was something interesting that really hadn't been looked at at all. That's what initially got me into it. And I'm still really enjoying it. I'm always finding new things about Dune um, every time I'm rereading things. So it, it's the gift that keeps on giving in terms of uh, looking, looking at it critically. And you mentioned already, you know, the various sources and inspirations that Herbert drew on in creating Dune and the Dune universe. Can you talk about what some of those were, those sort of the various real world and historical and literary sort of figures and events that all kind of make their way into the series? Sure. There's so many of them. <laughs> Herbert really was a master in taking bits and pieces from history and, and weaving them together into something coherent. And um, we talked about the Bedouin and the Arab influence is definitely a strong one in terms of the Fremen are a desert people. They live in very harsh, dry, moisture-starved environments. And if we look at the resource that's very valuable, which is why anyone even cares about Dune in the first place, is because spice exists there. And so in the Dune universe, spice is there's an analogy to to oil in our world. It's it's highly valuable, very costly, and the only place that it exists is on this planet. And so the outsiders and the foreigners and the corporations go to this planet because they need to get spice. And spice is used to extend people's life. It's used by groups like the Bene Gesserit and the Spacing Guild for space travel and altering the mind. So they really need that resource. And so they end up intruding on the Fremen's land because they want to get this resource out of there, which has a lot of parallels with the Middle East in terms of the Western influence and trying to get resources out of there. There's also, in terms of 
the Lawrence of Arabia influence. So we think about, again, a foreigner coming into the Middle East and having an influence there, helping guide and lead people towards some strategic objective. The main character in Dune, Paul Atreides, um, has similarities with the Lawrence of Arabia. And there's also an influence from Leslie Blanche's The Sabres of Paradise, which has only been a little bit explored, but um, there was a Islamic resistance movement in the Caucasus area against Russian imperialism a few centuries ago. And Herbert takes terms directly from that work. And there's also a, a courageous figure who uses religion as a way of gathering the people together to fight against the outside oppressor, which is very much similar to how, how Paul is able to um, use the Fremen against the people that are oppressing them and are preventing him from reclaiming his land. If we think in terms of religious influences, we've got Muhammad, the story of prophets coming out of the desert. Herbert was really interested in that. And so you can see elements of that come through as well. He was also friends with some Native Americans in on the West Coast of the U.S. And we're not sure exactly how much influence they had, but piecing together parts of his life in terms of looking at the harm that white people were causing to the Native American populations and environmental issues, living off the land versus exploiting your resources had definitely had an influence on him. And if we think about Native American culture more generally, we can see parallels with the Apaches and their guerrilla fighting and their kind of reputation as really fierce warriors, even when they're outnumbered and outgunned, you know, like still putting up a fight against the oppressors. And then if we think in terms of spice, so the Fremen use spice in part of their rituals and their ceremonies. And so that's also something that Native American tribes have used. They use um, peyote or other kinds of drugs and their rituals or as a sacrament. So those, those are all kind of woven together to make a new culture in the Fremen, but you can trace those influences. And there's also, we have Greek myths coming through. So the Trades name, it comes from the house of Atreus which was a very cursed house and it had lots of bad things happen to it. So Herbert also draws on the epic tradition and weaves that in and kind of brings that clash of cultures together between East and West in the Atreides and the Fremen. So it's a really, really interesting medley. I think it's, it's not just a straight copy of anything. It's very much a blend of things that he found interesting and thought would advance his story. Mm. Yeah. I mean, in my area of academia in like Islamic studies and Middle Eastern history, Dune is this sort of ubiquitous pop culture thing that people kind of point to all the time and say like, oh, you know, Frank Herbert was so interested in medieval Islamic history, but also modern, you know, Middle Eastern history. And it's so interesting how all of these things kind of make their way into this science fiction universe. So I had this idea of Dune as purely drawing on these sort of Arabic and Islamic references, I guess. Um, so I was surprised when I started doing more research into this topic of just how many references from other histories, other cultures actually kind of make their way into the story and sort of enrich the story. Herbert was very subtle. I think that's, that's a challenge when you're trying to study his Dune universe as he he doesn't really lay things out on a plate for you, really obvious ways. Um, it might just be a, a tiny reference here or a couple of phrases. And if you miss them, right, you miss them. And maybe you only get them on a reread or a third reread or a tenth reread. And if you're not familiar with the references or the history, like many readers won't be very familiar with some of the references. Um, they're there, but they're kind of waiting to be discovered. And I think that's what makes Dune really a rich text for rereading because there's no way you can possibly pick up on everything on the first time you mm. read it. Mm -hmm. There's lots of little nuggets. The more and, and the older you get and the more you know about the world and the more you know about history, it comes alive in new ways. That's something that I've certainly found. Mm. So to hone in on the Fremen a little bit more, you know, you've discussed already the dual influences of the Bedouin and also Native American cultures and histories on the characterization of the Fremen. 
Could you just expand a little bit more on that and how the Fremen are actually portrayed in the novels? Like if you had to kind of paint a picture of who the Fremen are, what their history is, how would you do that? So we only get brief snippets and a lot of them are actually through Jessica when she's undergoing the water of life ceremony and she pretty much has like a slideshow running through her head as she absorbs all the memories from the previous Fremen Reverend Mother. From what we can tell, the, the Fremen um, have come from other planets where they faced persecution. And it's implied that they went soft, they got comfortable somewhere, and then they were exploited and oppressed. And so they've, they've ended up on Dune with this history of persecution and slavery. And the, the tough environment of Dune and the desert and the sandworms has made them hard. So they've hardened themselves as a culture. And that's what's enabled them to survive. And even though to outsiders, they might seem uh, primitive or uncivilized, they actually are very resourceful. So they make lots of technology. Again, very understated, but they're the ones who make still suits, which allows them to survive in the desert. And their still suits are the best. You know, there's knockoff still suits, but you definitely don't want to be caught out with a knockoff still suit. And they have factories where they um, make plastics. That's part of the, the terraforming project they're working on. They have the hooks where they ride the sandworms. They've got sand tents that help collect the moisture. They've got sand compactors. Like they've found ways to survive in the desert, even though there's not a lot of moisture. And again, the sandworms are a perpetual threat. And something that's emphasized in the novel is their water discipline. So if anyone's ever lived in a desert like I have, you're very, you become very aware of water, where you can get it. And if you're stuck without water, you know, it can be a death situation. Like if you're out hiking, say, and you don't bring enough water with you and you get stranded somewhere. So they're, they're very aware of the preciousness of water, right? And they, they don't waste any water. So once somebody dies, they don't need that water anymore. And so the tribe has ways of extracting the water from someone so that they can purify it and use it again. And Herbert also mentions that they have bodily adaptations like quicker blood coagulation to prevent moisture loss, just like cactus and other plants have ways of adapting to not losing water out in the desert. Um, they've also, as a people, have adapted. And in terms of how Herbert describes them, so we hear about the Fremen before we see them. So that kind of builds up this sense of mystery. And, and when Stolgar comes onto the scene, I see a lot of similarities with how Lawrence of Arabia just or Lawrence describes Prince Faisal as a very like having a strong presence, having this regalness and walking into a room and just owning that room. And so he's portrayed as a very strong and skilled man who's a leader. Um, he's very cautious. He's skeptical of outsiders. They're very suspicious and, and waiting to see whether or not the newcomers are going to be a threat or not but they're very independent and capable people. And so the Harkonnen who have been oppressing them for so long have no idea how many of them there actually are. They move in night, you know, they, they avoid people really having a good understanding of them, but that doesn't mean that they don't understand how to play politics. So I think it's, it's also important to note that they also collect spice for themselves and they use that spice not only for their own personal needs, but they're also using it to bribe the spacing guild so that they can carry out their terraforming project. So they know how to play politics just like everyone else in the Imperium. They're just doing it on the down low. Another important thing to mention about them is the, the religious aspect. And this is where there's some debate about how they're portrayed in terms of like the Islamic influence. So Herbert tells us that in previous years, like decades or hundreds of years earlier, the Bene Gesserit came to the planet and sowed the Fremen society with these myths and legends, just in case they would ever need them in the future. And so it's not clear how much of their religion is their own and how much of it is the, the Bene Gesserit influence, but they use like Islamic terms like Sharia and things like that. And so there's this kind of blending of maybe their indigenous religion with the Bene Gesserit. But there are similarities with, with Islam. But I think it's important to know also a lot of religions don't have women have very high status or women aren't allowed to have the kind of religious leader positions. But that's not true in Dune. So Herbert has the Reverend Mothers in the Fremen Society be very high up 
They are considered the holders of the tribe's memory. They're consulted in, in decision-making as we see Jessica become a leader when she becomes a friend and reverend mother. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's a something unique that doesn't often happen in major world religions is mm-hmm. that women are given the, the prime religious leader position. But it, it is also a gendered society. Um, so we hear about like Chani and the women and children are sent away to the South to keep them safe from the raids that are happening. So even though we see Chani as a fighter, um, we also see her being protected as a part of the women and children group. So there's kind of two sides to that in terms of what the women are actually doing. But that's pretty common in terms of having men be the main fighters. Earlier, you described the Fremen as semi-nomadic. What evidence is there in the novels as to sort of their nomadic status? So we know that they live in sieges. So when when Paul and Jessica um, stumble across the Fremen and then are taken in, they go to Stogar's siege, siege tower. And these are very secret. So the Harkonnen don't really have access to the sieges. So they're kept well hidden. And this is part of why nobody knows how many Fremen there actually are because they live in these kind of caves that are, the locations are, are closely guarded. So we know that they do have some kind of like permanent places that they live, but they also go after the spice. So they also, they use sandworms for transportation. So we can see a link there with like camels. Um, they're very good at traveling around the desert as they need to. So they need to locate spice because they need it for trading and they need it for their own rituals. So we know they're at least moving around to find spice. And when they're being raided by their enemies, they will move people around to safety or to the deeper desert. And they have, they have factories where they're making the plastics and things. And so those sometimes they have to kind of like pack up everything and go if they're going to be raided. So they seem to be, they have, permanent places, but they can pack up and move quickly if they need to. And because they're so used to being oppressed and being harassed by the outsiders, they're very willing and able to move quickly if they need to. And what was Herbert's sort of direct experience with the Middle East, if any? You know, you mentioned that he had Native American friends in California or on the West Coast who might have had some influence on um, his writing. Is that true also for sort of the Middle Eastern or Islamic influences, or was his knowledge of the region and the history more mediated through other literary sources? Yeah, that's a really good question. From what I can tell and from the sources we have, I think it was more mediated through books and literature than direct influence, especially when you read The Sabres of Paradise or you read Seven Pillars of Wisdom and you can see the threads there. Now, of course, that's somewhat problematic because those are mediated through white Westerner perspectives and and kind of a travel account rather than say, direct experience. So it's not clear if Herbert had friends or people in his life that were directly connected with the Middle East, but he certainly consumed a lot of literature about those regions. And he was a journalist. So of course, it's always possible that he came across people in his interviews or in his life. It's one of those kind of areas that we don't know that much about Herbert. But he certainly was widely read enough to be able to transmit a sense of that place in Dune, even if he never himself went there or, you know, lived among those people, like some of the people that he read about. Hmm. Okay. So sort of continuing along those lines, you know, the question of Orientalism is one of the sort of hotly debated topics surrounding do, you know, when I was doing some research for this, I encountered people saying Dune and Herbert perpetuate Orientalist stereotypes about the Middle East um, by virtue of sort of doing what you just said by being so heavily influenced by sources like um, the Sabres of Paradise or Seven Pillars of Wisdom and kind of perpetuating some of the same narratives of the Middle East or a fictionalized version of the Middle East. 
And then I also encountered people saying, you know, no, it's a, it is actually a critique of Orientalism or that's kind of the intent. So I'm curious where, where you fall on that debate, or if you can maybe add some nuance to this question. Yes, this is a very, it's a very loaded issue, I think. Mm. Um, Especially again, if you think about how complex and layered Dune is, like if you read it at a surface level, certainly you can come up with criticisms of it but the more you know I think the more complex the argument becomes so I think there are problematic aspects in Dune as with most texts there's something about them Um, there are some orientalist aspects but I don't think at all it's black and white and I think we have to differentiate between negative appropriation or just using a culture to make something exotic or as a backdrop and stereotypical versus studying and respecting another culture to the point of a writer feeling like they can do it justice. And this is something that's currently being debated a lot about uh, minority groups and marginalized communities. Like, can you write about them if you're not from them? You know, and people have certainly very strong opinions either way, but I think we have to view the Fremen within the context of the story. And so if we think on the one hand, Fremen seem like this exotic desert dwellers and they're just manipulated by the Atreides and other outsiders. You know, you can certainly just see it kind of that way. On the other hand, though, you can also see it's a very realistic or inspired by aspects of Middle Eastern culture. And it's showing Arabic, Islamic culture, desert culture surviving into the future and being valuable and teaching foreigners, providing skills, you know, having really good grasp of technology. And Herbert certainly intended to critique the idea of the savior figure or the Messiah figure in Paul, even if it's, it's quite understated. But in interviews, he talks about that a lot. He said, I'm trying to show you how easy it is to be seduced by someone coming in and making big promises and telling you they're going to solve all their problems. He really wanted people to think for themselves. And so, yes, the Fremen are exploited. They are manipulated. But Herbert is not saying that's a good thing. He's trying to warn us against that happening. And we think about the jihad, right? So the jihad is justified because the Fremen have been so oppressed. They've been, they've been pushed planet to planet. They've been enslaved. You know, they're tired of being treated like this by people. And at the end of the novel, they're the ones that are going to take over the empire, which, which there's lots of signs that it's decaying, that it's corrupt, right? The, the emperor doesn't really care about the people he rules. The Harkonnens certainly have no love for the people that they rule over. And so Herbert's showing us this is a people that have the resources and skills. Yes, they did perhaps need help from someone like Paul or that they needed not so much help, but I think they needed a pathway into the Imperium. And I think that's what, that's what Herbert shows us that Jessica and Paul think they're coming in and they're going to use these Fremen. They're going to get back what they want, but in the process, they end up being transformed and becoming Fremen and then opening the gates to the Fremen taking over the universe, essentially. And Paul admits by the end, he actually can't control the Fremen. He was never in control of them. What he did was he opened the gates for them to to take over. And so they were very much an underestimated people. And I think another interesting thing is um, we learn from uh, Herbert's son, Brian. He says that his dad saw himself in Stogar and he kind of perhaps modeled parts of Stogar off of himself as this kind of like wise man who wants to, you know, do good by his people and he wants to do the right thing. You know, he doesn't maybe necessarily see all the consequences, but I think we have to look at the Fremen in terms of how they treat the environment. There's, there's a very clear distinction between the Fremen and and living in harmony with the environment. You know, they're not afraid of the sandworm. You know, they don't think the sandworm has to be wiped out. They've figured out how to move, you know, how to move on the sand, how to ride the sandworm. They take spice, yes, but they only take really what they need. Um, they're not just there to, you know, completely wipe everything out. So there, you can see it from both angles, I think. But the, the Fremen are certainly not portrayed as evil or, you know, completely clueless or, you know, just as a primitive people. You know, they're, they're really the ones 
that take Jessica and Paul in, teach them their ways, have them become desert dwellers as well, and then harness that so that they can kind of take revenge on all the people that have, you know, oppressed them. I think that you have to kind of see it in a more complex and nuanced way. Like there are elements that are probably relying on stereotypes, but I think overall it's a, it's a positive portrayal of people living in harmony with their environment and doing things and getting away with things that the oppressors have no idea about. Um, So they're very, they're very much skilled in that way. Mm, Interesting. Thank you. Yeah. That did provide exactly the nuance that I was looking for. (laughs) So do you think that the Fremen are a model for the reader? Is the message that the Fremen are living in harmony with nature and with their environment in a way that we should be seeking to emulate? Who are we kind of supposed to be aligning ourselves with in the novel as readers? Or is that too kind of simplistic a question? Yeah, Herbert, he doesn't like to give easy answers. So I think in terms of a reader's perspective, we're supposed to identify with Paul and Jessica as the main characters. And they're, they're the people that we see the world of Dune and the Fremen through. But on the other hand, in terms of Herbert's critique of their manipulation and their thinking that they can just get away with whatever they want and use religion as a tool, they're not held up as the people that we really want to emulate. But if we look at the Fremen, so in terms of the Fremen being people to emulate, the problem is that Herbert shows that even these very strong and hardy people are also open to manipulation. They're also open to this, this strong leader. So even though they have Stilgar, who is a strong leader, they've been taken in by this idea that they can make Dune a paradise. And so this and this ties into even before Paul gets here, we have this John the Baptist figure of the kinds, right? Pardot kinds and Liet kinds. They've already come to the planet and they've already kind of built up this idea that like, oh, wouldn't it be great if we just had open flowing water? Then you wouldn't have to live such a hard life. And so a part of the reason they got into this mess was because they, they went soft on this other planet and they kind of let their guard down. It's here these these people coming in are promising the, the exact same thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like we can we can bring water here, we can make the sandworms kind of just go off in their little corner, and we can have green things growing, and they fall for it. And so we see not necessarily in the first book, but we see the threads of it where they're starting this terraforming project, but water is poisonous to the sandworms. So how can you have a, a planet with open flowing water and all this greenery when that's not what works for the sandworms and that's not what works for the spice, which the sandworms are part of that, that, that life cycle. Mm. So we start seeing this people, they know how to survive and they have all these skills and they're buying into this idea that, well, maybe we could just live differently. And Herbert expands on this in the later books and says, what happens is the same thing has maybe happened before they start getting comfortable, right? And then you start losing your traditions and all of the things that made your, your people strong and resilient and skilled, you kind of relax and on those things start to go away. So possibly parts of the Fremen are something that we could aspire to as readers in terms of, instead of trying to kill the sandworms or instead of trying to make the planet, you know, what they want it to be initially, they were okay with just, you know, adapting themselves, but that outside influence shifted their mindset. And so we see them on that path toward, again, trying to make the planet work for them instead of working in harmony with it. And I think that's part of the larger ecological message that Herbert wanted us to see. And so there is no character or group of characters that are the people that we should want to emulate completely because they all have their flaws. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Yeah, I mean, that does have some very 
real world parallels to like modern environmentalist discourse uh, where deserts are very kind of demonized um, and attempted to be irrigated or replaced with forests, which of course, you know, completely, as you're saying, completely disrupts the ecosystem and has disastrous consequences for the people who live in them. So yeah, very kind of pointed environmentalist critique. Yeah, and the water, if you're going to bring that stuff into the desert, you have to bring water from somewhere else. Mm -hmm. So where else are you going to bring that water from? Because then you're taking water from another environment or ecosystem. That's always the question. And there's fights in the U.S. between states and, and different places. You know, whose water, whose river is it? Who gets the water? You know, we have a growing population. We have a growing population. Well, yeah, who gets the precious resource of water? Someone has to give something up. I thought we could maybe transition a little bit and talk about the movies, uh, which is maybe a more accessible point of entry to the Dune universe for some people who might not have hours upon hours to invest in reading this very long series of novels. And I know this is a little bit outside of maybe your area of expertise, but I thought it would just be interesting to get your thoughts on it anyways. So as far as I know, there are two movie adaptations of Dune, um, the David Lynch version from 1984 and the recent one that just came out last year. So what do you think about, maybe specifically about how the Fremen are portrayed in the movies? There's also was a TV miniseries made in the 2000s oh, right. as well. I forgot about that. Which, yeah. <laughs> so I think the movies really show how unwilling Western culture is to engage with the Middle East, especially in the new movie. There's not a strong or really any Islamic elements in terms of ethnicity of the characters or the, the actors playing. Um, that was something that definitely has been brought up in terms of criticism is like where are all the Arab actors um, why does it seem to be a hodgepodge of different ethnicities? To me, that signals it's a fear of engaging with Middle Eastern politics. Like, mm. even though the US especially is heavily invested and has been for a long time in what happens over in the Middle East, what happens with the oil, what's happening with the resources in terms of culture. I mean, this, this story, Dune's story, is fundamentally about culture clashes, but also cultures coming together. Right. So to me, it's about West and East learning from each other. Like we have the Atreides, they're trying to exploit the Fremen, yes, but they also end up learning from them and integrating in with their society. And Islamic influences are a significant part of the novel. And in those Lawrence of Arabia influences and thinking about, you know, outsiders coming into a place and, you know, doing what they want there, all of that history of the Middle East and, and the interactions with the West, I think like. Those are there in Dune. And when I see the adaptations, I don't see those coming through. It seems like it's a, it's a, like a sanitized version of like, it's set in the desert, yes, but it seems more like it's a generic indigenous oppressed peoples. Hmm. It doesn't have the same undertones. It doesn't have the same themes. It doesn't have the same warnings around the religious influences that that Middle Eastern history and culture give us. And this isn't surprising to me because we, our educational system in the West, I think still doesn't really talk about the area, except, I mean, we're fine with ancient history and Mesopotamia, but we don't have a lot of cultural understanding of Islamic history or Islamic culture or Islamic religion. You know, we're five decades away from when Dune was published. And I think Hollywood is still not interested in, in kind of dealing with those politics in a way that would be perhaps controversial. So it's easier to just kind of sidestep them. But to me, it's a missed opportunity because Dune is a really unique example of trying to show cultures coming together, you know, and finding some kind of balance with each other and working together to, to overcome oppression, you know, and perhaps not in the best way in terms of maybe like the religious violence or the war part, but especially if you think about targeted at a Western reader, it's trying to show that this other, this other people, the Fremen, you know, have value, have skills, have resources, you know, they're humans, just like the Atreides are, 
and they should be respected and they shouldn't be treated in the way that they've been treated. I don't get those coming through in the movies. I think it's very much a more surface level, good guys versus bad guys. It doesn't bring in those layers of the Middle East. And I don't know, you know, when that is going to change, why, why we can't have people that all have a similar accent that are very clearly hmm. Arabic speakers or, you know, or using that kind of influence. Who knows what goes on behind the scenes, but it just seems like it's playing it safe rather than engaging. But when we look at what's happening in the Middle East, right, and what's happening in Afghanistan, don't we need to have more cultural understanding? Don't we need to have a bridge across these cultures so that we can not keep repeating the same mistakes, not keep trying to do the same things when we don't understand each other? So we'll see what happens in part two. That should be much more set within the Fremen society and culture. So I'm not mm. sure where they're going to head with that. But just based on what we've seen so far, um, it's not it's not recognizably, I'd say, set in the Middle East. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because I saw the movie that came out last year with kind of no prior knowledge of Dune or anything. And I was really struck by the extent to which, to me, it was sort of recognized, like the landscape was sort of recognizably the Middle East. But I think that's because like, I've been to the places where the movie was filmed. So I was like, okay, I can actually locate this in space. Um, but I think also there's such a this phenomenon in film, in the science fiction films, especially maybe starting with Star Wars or maybe even predating that, where the desert landscape of the Middle East becomes sort of synonymous with these like foreign planets. So I, I wonder if that's also sort of a problem um, with these films where we kind of can't disentangle these images of the Middle East from these images of outer space. And that has the effect of kind of further making the Middle East foreign and kind of pushing it away and making it very other and far away and alien in the Western imagination. Yeah, it's like the place where people go and bring science and technology mm. rather than actually the people are already fine there. You know, they already know how to work there. They've already have their own technology. They don't need someone coming in and bringing something new and disrupting them, but that just seems to always be what happens. And so they have to continually deal with foreigners coming in. Yeah. I mean, Dune was a major influence on star Wars. So if, mm. if you look at Tatooine, it's pretty much <laughs> inspired by Dune. That makes sense. Um, but if you look at, if you contrast, say, the Tuscan Raiders and the Jawas with the Fremen, you know, that it's pretty clear, you know, mm. who's more humanized and who's, who's more or less othered, I mm. would say, because in Star Wars, like, you know, they're not speaking mm. a, a language that can be interpreted except through, you know, a mediator, um, whereas the, the Fremen are very much able to communicate and, and again, play politics with everyone else, whereas you know, what George Lucas did in terms of having them kind of, you know, screaming and, and crying and, and fully covered. And right. yeah. Yeah. No, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. If you see the new uh, book of Boba Fett that goes into <laughs> okay. even more about, you know, Tuscan Raider life. And, oh, interesting. And again, it plays on similar tropes of, of an other or a person coming in as a foreigner to um, their camp and learning their ways and, and kind of becoming a member of the, of the, of the tribe. It's, it's, hmm. It's a very, very familiar narrative, but you know, are we going to ever move on from from that and, right. and tell a story from their perspective rather than always having that person coming in like, oh, it's so great to learn your ways so that I can use them to my own advantage and sorry about what happens to you. Mm, interesting. So maybe just a final question uh, as we wrap up. You've touched on this a little bit already, but I guess I just wanted to end with sort of your thoughts on what we can kind of take away from Dune, what you think sort of the larger message is that Herbert sort of meant to leave his readers with. And I think that's kind of a large question and definitely very open for debate. And also maybe sort of more broadly, what do you think the role of science fiction is in imparting kind of real world 
messages, actual like tangible takeaways that readers can bring into their actual lives. You know, we've talked about sort of how Herbert portrays issues of, you know, the treatment of indigenous peoples and environmental degradation and resource extraction and exploitation. Do you see science fiction, either, you know, movies, books, any sort of um, science fiction media as being something that we can and should turn to as sort of educational tools in modeling, you know, how we could interact with our environment or with people around us. Definitely. Definitely. <laughs> it's one of the strengths that was, of the genre. That was sort of a gimme question, but <laughs> I think, well, in terms of what did Herbert want us to take away, he had a lot of messages in there. Again, some of them more subtle than others. So definitely recommend rereading multiple times if you want to get more of the messages from there. His main message, at least according to him in interviews, is warning people against the idea of the charismatic leader. So he's trying to show how easy it is to be seduced by someone like Paul and someone like Jessica, who seem like they just want to get along and they just want to help out, right? And they actually have their own ulterior motives. So that's that's one message. Um, the environmental message is also a strong one that that June really pushed in terms of the rest of the genre. And so we, we see a lot more environmental science fiction coming out kind of post sixties. It's not necessarily a straightforward message again, because even the Fremen who we might hold up as these kind of models, they're also taken in by the scientist who comes in and promises them an easier life and, and, and talks about transforming the planet as a good thing. And maybe it is a good thing for them. And there can be, you know, the best of intentions. But the problem is because everything is interconnected, right? Because you do one thing here and it has domino effects elsewhere. You can't just turn the planet into a water paradise and expect that the sandworms are still going to be fine or expect that the the oxygen is going to be, you know, the same or you, you can't make one change and predict what's going to happen elsewhere. So the consequences and the ripple effects is what humans continually fail to see. And we see this in the real world where they'll introduce, they introduce this animal to kill off this animal. And then the animal ends up, you know, causing all the destruction. And then they bring in another animal, to take care of that animal. And it's like, we just don't learn. Like you can't just control nature in that way. So that's probably the main message is trying to have control of everything. Like mm -hmm. the Bunny Desert try to have control and the feudal, Dukes and barons try to have control. Everyone's trying to have control and everyone's failing to have control really by the end of the book. Even Paul, supposedly the hero, also fails to control. He can't control the Fremen. He can't control the Jihad. He's a superhuman with all these special abilities and yet the universe kind of moves past him. Hmm. So it's really kind of about humanity's like ego and how we actually don't have all the answers, right? And if we would just live more in balance with the world around us, we would probably be doing doing better. I think those are some of the messages that that Dune leaves us with. In terms of science fiction as a genre, I think the real power in this genre is that it lets us imagine how things might be different mm -hmm. and lets us explore possible futures and see potential consequences that might help us change our course of action today. And of course it doesn't always happen, but thinking about the impacts of technology, thinking about you know computers, artificial intelligence, all of these things have already been talked about by science fiction writers. Sort of ironically, we can learn more about ourselves through fiction by seeing the things we do currently, but, but what science fiction does is it takes, it takes what, what we are as humans and how we think and everything, and it kind of puts us in a new location or a new environment or a new future. And then it lets us see how that might play out. And I think it exposes some of our flaws more so than we get by reading kind of other things that are maybe more straightforward or just kind of explaining or informational. And that's something that science fiction critics have talked about where you take what's happening here, you put them on a new planet, right? And then you turn the the alien, you know, the alien is kind of a stand-in for something else. And then you say, 
wait, why are they treating the aliens so poorly? Like, that seems really wrong and disrespectful. Like, why would you do that? And then you can think like, oh, we're doing that here today on earth with this group of people. Um, and it kind of like lets you see, it lets you see yourself and your behavior or maybe the groups of people or your nation state in new ways. It can get you out of the rut of thinking that this is all normal, this is all natural, or this is just how we are. And I think especially um, for me, looking at the Bene Gesserit, looking at the representation of women, don't women need to imagine a future that is different from the oppressive, discriminatory world that we live in now? And, and I think that's why I'm really interested in, in, in having women be more interested in science fiction, because it is, it is for everyone. It's for everyone to imagine a better world and whatever that means. And we don't all have the same vision of what a better world is, right? And that's why we're, we'll still have tensions among ourselves. But, but if you can imagine something better, I think that can help you work toward it. And of course, we have a lot of dystopian science fiction, which is very popular right now, maybe tells us where we're at in terms of our mental state of being. Um, but even reading something about a pandemic in the future you know, how do those people get over it? How do those people cope? You know, can we learn any lessons that can help us? And I think you can take a lot away from science fiction if you're kind of open, open to it and you're open to reading the diversity that's out there. So you don't have to just read about spaceships or future or time travel. Like there's other things that are more grounded in taking our world and just shifting a bit. And so I think um, for anyone who hasn't read science fiction or hasn't read a wide variety to explore, to explore different types of science fiction and and see what interests you. Great. Well, that was a great note to end it on. I think. Thank you so much for joining me. I learned a lot about Dune and I'm looking forward to reading more of your writing on Dune. I'll post links to your blog and your book um, and social media channels in the show notes. So listeners can check those out if you're interested in reading more of Kara's writing and thoughts on the Dune universe. And maybe you can come back when uh, the second part of the movie comes out and we can talk more about the Fremen. Yes, I'd love to. (laughs) Thank you for listening. And of course, special thanks to Dr. Kara Kennedy for coming on to talk to me. I'll post some links and images and further resources related to the content of this episode on my Twitter at nomads underscore pod. So please check that out if you're interested. You can also contact me there or by email at digitalnomadspod at gmail.com if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, or if there's a topic you'd like me to cover in the future. Thanks so much for listening. Mm